Hello and welcome to another episode of The Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and I'm very excited for this episode where I'll be interviewing Yejin Choi. Yejin is the Brett Household Professor at the University of Washington's Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science. She's also a senior research manager at the Allen Institute of Artificial Intelligence. At AI2, she oversees Mosaic, a project that aims to build machines with common sense intelligence. Today, I'll be chatting with her about common sense and moral reasoning. We had a really interesting discussion, and there are a lot of topics in here that I think are very exciting and salient for machine learning researchers today. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, Jin, at this point, it feels like you're kind of a, a titan in the AI field. Your work has been covered in the New York Times, the New Yorker, Quanta. You're a professor at the University of Washington. You lead research at the Allen Institute. But I'm wondering if we can start by going back a little bit. So I'd love for you to tell me a bit about your first experiences with artificial intelligence. What drew you to the field in the first place? Um, oddly enough, it was the fact that it was in the winter time when I was deciding to enter into it that attracted me because um, I didn't think much of myself. Um, and it seemed that some of the fields that are so mature uh, require a lot more innovation compared to AI that was still in the winter time. seemed like one day it might have a future, in which case I could start early. It was a gamble, um, but I was excited to explore that possibility. And um, I mean, intelligence in itself is a really intriguing question on top of uh, building computational models of it. So half curiosity, half um, just adventurous nature that I had. Yeah, that must be a really interesting time to be getting into the field because today it does feel like we're in one of those parts of the hype cycle where there is a lot of funding and excitement being thrown into it. And I think a lot of people are worried, are we maybe headed for another winter? I'm curious, in the particular time when you were first getting into it, what sorts of questions were people thinking about then? What were the sorts of research projects that were being pursued? And, and what did you first get into? Yeah, so I, I was beginning my PhD in 2003, and um, that's when there was a Silicon Valley bubble, not uh, particularly AI one, but more like a computer science one, uh, broadly engineering wise. There was a lot of excitement. Um, in that context, it seemed like, um, especially NLP field that I chose, uh, you know, we, we are doing more, uh, let's just say, fundamental research that uh, didn't work too well just yet. We're building a lot of prototypes that are not ready for commercialization. Uh, compared to that, now, like you said, there's a lot of excitement. I don't know if winter is coming anytime soon, though, because we are building things that do work so much better than what anybody ever expected for the first time. And I am optimistic that we are going to see more surprises in the coming years. Though it doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly have AGI in a few years down the road. I think we'll just discover a lot of new capabilities as AI as a tool. 
Yeah, yeah. And I guess that that definitely manifests in a lot of your work that we're going to talk about. Since you were really just getting into the field, you mentioned your PhD in 2003. This is very much the the pre-deep learning moment, right? Pre-AlexNet. And I, I know for NLP as well, of course, that just totally revolutionized how we did things. We all of a sudden had these, you know, recurrent neural networks. We had LSTMs. Now we have transformers. And I know that forms a big part of pretty much all of the NLP work that happens today. I'm curious if you could comment a little bit on the differences between what it was like working on NLP back then in those pre-deep learning days and what it's like right now. Yeah, that's a very good question. I love to answer this. So these days, you know, people complain about deep learning being a bit too engineering heavy and it feels like uh, hacking things away. Uh, The truth is, even back then, it was that way, only that without deep learning. So what we were doing quite often was to do feature engineering, trying, you know, bigram features or trigram features and trying this and that and trying stop word list to get rid of some words. And these were relatively common practice that we no longer do. We replaced that kind of hacking or chip tricks per se with maybe hyperparameter tuning. But by and large, there were such things even back then, although perhaps under um, umbrella of Bayesian graphical models were uh, more probabilistic uh, models that felt more correct. Intuitively speaking, it felt beautiful. The equations were beautiful. And by the time I was about to graduate, it really became a big thing in the field. And I, I thought it was going to solve AGI then because it just looked so intellectually appealing, compelling. Um, but down, it didn't really take off as much as we then expected. And I think it's in part because there's a huge gap between what theory is about. And then when you try to adapt it for real application, you need to start making assumptions and approximations. And then at the end, it's not even clear what it is that we are building at that point because of all these um, approximations and assumptions. And part of that assumption that uh, this previous approach approaches made was that some oracle will give you the variable definitions were some sort of like templated version of the Bayesian graphical models. Uh, and, you know, it's like practitioners can figure that out based on their domain knowledge. And, you know, scientists only do this um, computation of conditional probabilities and marginalize things out. And it turns out that beginning assumption was a huge thing that neural network can do far better in terms of discovering the latent uh, representations. Yeah, so I I think um, I'm not necessarily thinking that deep learning will on its own by just the scale achieve AGI, but um, it's certainly so much more powerful thing. And the fact that we are doing representation learning from bottom up, it's a good thing, I believe. Yeah, that's a really exciting shift. And I guess, especially with the powerful language models we've seen recently, it's almost wild just to look at the emergent properties they picked up just from being trained on this stupid amount of data. And to what you said about that shift away from these probabilistic graphical models and logical symbolisms, representations that are really hand engineered that are put together by people, it's not as if they've completely gone away, right? There are still methods there 
that are intermixing the two, symbolic methods and deep learning. And I think some of your work has, has leveraged this as well. One thing in what you said that I actually wanted to pull out a little bit too was you mentioned specifically, it sounds like back in the day, I guess not to you know say that was all dated, you were still hacking away at things just with different models or with ideas, equations, things that felt really intuitively beautiful. And recently, one thing I've observed a little bit in the NLP community is a bit of lamentation in that regard. There was a really interesting piece a few months ago, maybe it was a year or so ago, who knows, honestly, with the pandemic. This appeared in the um, MIT Technology Review by Jesse Duniad. You might have come across it. The title was Natural Language Processing is Chasing After the Wrong Goal. And for listeners who might not have read this piece, really the, the thesis of it was that natural language processing really seems to have strayed away from what its original goals were to develop systems that really understand and can converse in natural human language, but rather it's become a game of getting better performance on these benchmarks, much like the rest of deep learning. And I I wonder if you feel the same about the direction that NLP has gone as a field and whether it was any better in that regard when you were just getting started. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's a <laughs> juicy question. I know some people think, um, so I uh, basically disagree with the viewpoint. I mean, I agree with some aspect of it that current models are not truly understanding. Uh, that, yeah, sure. Um, uh, but did the original goal, I mean, it might be also true that the fundamental goal of the field is to build computational models that does truly understand. Maybe that was the goal from day one. However, what actually did happen 20 years ago, I wouldn't call that as true understanding either. Uh, we just never really had the true understanding for one reason or the other. Back then, uh, it's in part the models were not powerful enough. The data was not enabling enough. But it's not just that even the linguistic formalisms are not really designed for real understanding. You know, context-free grammars that the field relied on so much cannot really uh, encompass the true meanings. And, oh, is that problem gone if we use context-sensitive grammar then? Absolutely not, because the grammars only narrowly touches on certain aspects of syntax and semantics of language, but the real deal is in pragmatic meanings. Uh, meanings in context, all the connotations and uh, discourse structure and all these things are uh, becoming more amenable uh, with the help of deep learning today. And I agree that it's not perfect yet, but it doesn't mean that in the past we were achieving better by any measure. Sure. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I guess that maybe what I sense in that lamentation is exactly that that desire for, you know, this is a really beautiful theory about how the world works. And maybe some people are like, I still subscribe to that theory, or I just wish the world worked in that way to what you said about these theories of grammar, things that came from Chomsky and how the field of linguistics had such a, a weight on the field back then. It's like, yes, there are these these prescriptive notions of what language looks like. But as you said, there's this bottom-up sense in which those those sorts of theories 
really do fail to capture, I think, the full complexity, the full diversity in which we humans tend to use language. And that's influenced by so many different factors. And maybe one way you can read that shift as well is that in this more bottom-up approach that deep learning models are taking today, really just learning from, from the data itself. There's more of an ability, perhaps, to pick up, let's let the words speak from themselves. That sounded really tautological. But just to say that learning from the way people are actually using language instead of opposing, imposing this top-down framework really does, I guess you can read that as, as a good shift in lots of ways. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe moving on from these broader questions about NLP, you lead the Mosaic Project at the Allen Institute, and this is this is focused on common sense intelligence. Could you maybe introduce the project and tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. So the team was built 2018, that's four years ago, in the hope to get some groundwork done for toward uh, building common sense models. And I was excited to do it. But I was also at the same time losing sleeps at night because I was wondering whether this is my career suicide by working on something that people are not, not only not excited to work on, but also skeptical, very skeptical back then. You know, now I get a lot of keynote invited this uh, talks. So it's interesting that the new generation of students think that it's obviously reasonable thing to study. But back then there was a lot of a pushback. And in, in this uh, four year of time, uh, we achieved far more than what I could have hoped for. I think stars were aligned. We were lucky that, you know, pre-trained language models were getting stronger and stronger, which became an important tool uh, as a quote unquote foundation model to build our common sense models on. Um, but then uh, we were doing a lot of different things in our lab in order to compensate for the lack of common sense in these pre-trained language models. So uh, we are investigating different ways to uh, learn knowledge as well as reasoning, common sense knowledge and reasoning. Yeah, I guess um, to what you said about when you got started, it sounds a little bit almost like a microcosm of that entering AI at an AI winter again, right? It's entering this field at a time when a lot of people are skeptical. So it sounds like there's, there's a hint of repeated bravery there. I definitely see that back before pre-trained language models were a thing, I also didn't really see a way in which these neural networks could pick up common sense. But now it just seems like, okay, we have a lot of ways in which we can we can attack the problem. So before we jump into some of your specific works in this area, let's maybe just back up a little bit and introduce the topic. So what what is common sense and why is it difficult? for neural networks, for machine learning algorithms to actually display common sense? Yeah, so common sense is trivial for humans and hard for machines. I consider that as dark matter of intelligence uh, in that it's elusive, it's difficult to, de to define precisely or enumerate the scope of it. We don't even know how many pieces of common sense knowledge any human or, or on average a human being might hold. Uh, we just have no clue how to even measure it, how to even begin. An example of a common sense might be that uh, refrigerator door, you, you should keep it closed. Closed door, on the other hand, no big deal if you keep it open. The clothes inside will not go bad, whereas, you know, refrigerator, the food inside can go bad. Unless, of course, you know, you put only like crackers, 
that does not need refrigeration, then who cares? So these are sort of like rules of thumbs that uh, we rely on for day-to-day activities. This is world model in our head uh, about how the physical world works and how the social world works. You know, if I keep the refrigerator door open and then the electricity bill goes up very high, my family may not be happy about it. But, you know, like I can reason about the theory of the mind of other people uh, influenced by my actions. And so it's very much there. And the hard part about that from neural networks standpoint is that currently it's just trained on a lot of uh, raw text and raw images and videos. And it's difficult for them to infer these hidden rules. It, it is able to pick up the indirect patterns by virtue of seeing a lot of data, but it's not able to correctly spell out some of these unspoken rules. So that's the challenge. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So in your example, I can say that I know I should maybe keep a fridge closed when I have perishable foods in there, and it's not as big of a deal when I leave the closet door open because presumably what's left unsaid there is I'm putting clothes and not perishable foods in my closet. And the closet also isn't really structured in a way so as to, you know, keep perishable foods from well perishing. And that's a lot of unspoken information that I've collected about the world through experience that gets applied in this situation. And in the the very act of just stating one single sentence. As you said, I really am putting together a lot of my judgments, my inferences, my intuitions of the world around. One thing I'm really curious about here, and this is maybe a question just about the possibility of machines really being able to pick up all of this, is that there are a lot of theories that kind of come at this in different ways. I think that some of our intuitions about the world, they come from empirical sense data, But if you really want to go down like the hard metaphysics route, there are also a lot of perhaps a priori intuitions you might agree that we have about the world, right? So Kant thinking that space and time are prerequisites for any experience itself. I'm curious how you think that aspect maybe factors in to this idea of common sense and for a machine's ability to pick it up, especially if you think that some of these a priori intuitions are only available to humans with certain cognitive systems. Yeah, so um, your uh, question is very sharp about you know why where machine might fail. So development psychologists have these uh, models about human cognition that does have representation of time and space being different from representation of Asians, for example, uh, animate Asians versus inanimate objects, um, and then numeracy. These are all different things. Whereas neural network, it's all the same tokens, and we we just uh, learn uh, embeddings for it. So as a result, if you ask more numeric questions or time-related questions, there are benchmarks that that do demonstrate how neural networks tend to fail on those cases. They are still able to do well with numbers that appear often enough. But then if you change the number to uh, expressions that are slightly less common, then it will make mistakes again. So currently, neural networks rely a great deal on what humans actually have spoken out loud. And so there's that limitation. And going forward, it might 
mean that we somehow need to figure out how to structure the representation of concepts such that these things can be better represented by neural network. I'm still betting my bet uh, on neural networks. It's just that maybe not in the current form of monolithic transformers. That's a fair point. And I guess there's definitely been some work on curation of data for language models. Currently, they definitely are trained on just lots of text that you see on the internet. And this maybe draws us into a couple of the things you were speaking of in this piece you wrote on the curious case of common sense intelligence. And so it does seem like there's a good case for these pre-trained transformers. You note that because of just the nature of our intuitive immediate reasoning, the space of it, the concepts we tend to reason over, they're infinite, right? We can compose, compose concepts without really making explicit statements about them. And as a result, the intuitive inferences that you and I make are really best expressed through, through natural language as opposed to formal symbols and things like that. In this piece, you, you mention this specific concept, abductive reasoning, that I think is a really important one to highlight here. Could you maybe explain that just a little bit? Yeah, I first learned about the concept of abduction or abductive reasoning in uh, ACL Lifetime Achievement Award speech by J- Jerry Hobbs, I believe. I forgot which year. I was uh, surprised that I've never heard of that phrase before, as it's not taught as often compared to induction or deduction. So when we think about logical reasoning, we tend to equate that with induction and deduction, and that's it. But it turns out what human reasoning is about is more on the abduction side than the other two. And abduction, so abduction is reasoning about the best explanation given partial observation. And, you know, the example about this closet door, whether it's okay to keep it open or not, all of these are a form of abductive reasoning, not knowing you don't know the full context of this particular closet. Who knows, maybe it's refrigerated closet. Uh, if I add more context, I can flip your decision, which means uh, all these human inferences tend to be defeasible with additional context. And we do this all the time. We always uh, make snapshot judgments or predictions about people's intent and their goals and you know why something is there, why something is happening without having the full context. So we do this abductive reasoning day to day, all the time. And in addition, even scientific research is a form of abductive reasoning because we oftentimes, it would be such a boring paper if we only wrote papers based on induction and deduction because these tools are reformulating all the knowledge that you already have that has to be absolutely correct. So there will be very incremental papers. But abductive reasoning is where the true creativity can uh, shine. Um, so it's very important, but the field hasn't studied it very much. But then, like, why is that so, right? That's because the logical forms or, you know, the mathematical logical frameworks do not work very well with this kind of reasoning. So it has been overlooked. And I wanted to work on it, but I felt like I don't know how to even get started. Um, but then as uh, we have these powerful pre-trained language models, we can start studying this. That's unfortunate that it hasn't gotten a lot of attention in the NLP community, especially 
given how you've described it, it really is one of the most fundamental bases of human reasoning. As you said, it underlies a lot of our creativity. I think I'd never have been introduced to abductive reasoning if it weren't for my metaphysics classes. We were introduced to it as something called inference to the best explanation. Basically, as you described it, just choosing a hypothesis or theory that best explains our available data, which of course is going to be incomplete data because we can never have full knowledge of the world at all. So that's that's a bit unfortunate, but it does underlie a lot of that common sense reasoning. And it's really interesting just the fact that we can now study it in language-based systems. I guess moving on a little bit, now that we've talked about some of these bases for what common sense reasoning is, how do we actually measure common sense reasoning? What does it look like to benchmark a system and understand how good are you at doing this? Yeah, so that's a great question for which I don't have a very satisfying answer just yet because oftentimes uh, we do multiple choice question benchmarks because that way we can evaluate the correct answer automatically. But then it turns out neural networks are just really good at latching on superior patterns in the benchmarks and then pretending to solve the problem correctly for the wrong reason. It's a, a clever Hans horse situation where the horse you know, pretends to do arithmetics by reading the body language of the horse, uh, horse owner. Of course, it's not doing arithmetics. So multiple choice questions almost always have that problem because, I mean, we have our own human experience of that too. Like we sometimes didn't study enough and yet still guess the correct answer of multiple choice exams based on some suspicious stylistic cues that the exam crafting person left behind. So there's that. And then then if that's not the case, I think the true evaluation should be in the form of a more generative evaluation where we have the machine to generate the answer and then only then evaluate. And in fact, this is how we actually evaluate other human beings, you know, for the purpose of say hiring someone for programming job. I mean, you're not going to hire somebody based on multiple choice questions. You really want to do the coding interview. Um, you know, hiring research scientists to require giving a job talk, not like multiple choice question again. So our human lives are that way as well because generative evaluation is the way to go, except uh, there's no automatic measures that are reliable enough today for that purpose. So it actually challenges another uh, open research question, but we can still do some crowdsourcing-based human evaluation. And I think that's um, currently reasonable uh, way forward. And it does give us a lot of insights about what does work in the way that humans can actually quantify. That makes sense to me. What you said there, I think, raises maybe two questions in my mind. It seems like there are these two evaluation methods. One seems a little bit better than the other. The first being these more automated evaluation methods that don't quite solve the problem as well because multiple choice questions aren't super indicative of common sense intelligence. And as you pointed out, it's a longstanding problem that neural networks, especially over-parameterized neural networks, are very good at picking up on spurious patterns. One question that raises for me actually is there's been... A lot of development recently just in observing these properties of neural networks and that there are particular regimes beyond which they are still able to, to generalize, even when they are over-parameterized. If you just train them on more data, if you make them larger, these scaling laws 
really get them beyond that place of overfitting back into a regime where they're able to generalize. And of course, I think a lot of the papers that demonstrated these things, like the double dissent paper that came out of OpenAI or the more recent grokking paper, really demonstrated those on toy problems. But I'm curious if that has any weight on our evaluation of common sense intelligence systems by these means. Um, so uh, multiple choice, especially over parameterized models, there's also related uh, research that demonstrate that despite overfitting, despite the fact that probably the performances are inflated on multiple choice questions, these results are not entirely uh, meaningless because the relative ranking of different models tend to carry on even when you make these multiple choice uh, exams less biased or less loaded with uh, superior patterns. So these things really do serve uh, some useful goals. I, I think it's good to perhaps mix that with generative evaluation still in the following sense. Like models do need to be able to in order to be useful, they actually do need to be able to generate answers because multiple choice questions require some oracle actually giving you some choices to choose from where one of them is guaranteed to be true. So that's just not feasible in real life situations. So there's that. Regardless of evaluation, though, it seems that um, the overfitted large scale models do tend to well on uh, broader ranges of a common sense benchmarks. They're, they may or may not be at the human level, depending on the benchmarks, but yeah. That makes sense. It, it does seem like there are roles for both generative and discriminative evaluation in understanding how all these models perform. But I do agree with you about generative maybe being a little bit better in, in a lot of respects. And one thing I do wonder about, because in a lot of cases, as you said, the generative evaluations you have to evaluate them via crowdsourcing or, or humans looking at them. And one thing that I always wonder about these sorts of evaluations is how scalable that is and whether you can really get to the point where you have the sorts of systems you want via those evaluation methods. Yeah, it's not only not scalable, it's true. Um, also, there's a burden of making the model really that much better because Nice thing about automatic evaluation is that even though the model actually isn't noticeably better from the standpoint of human users, which had been open the case with NLP models that does summarization or machine translation for a long time, humans actually cannot tell if there's any improvement, but it does show up just a little bit in the automatic evaluation so that it's enough of an ACL paper. This had happened before deep learning took off. Whereas now, uh, if we go with the generative evaluation, you have this burden of actually being able to really improve the performance so that human evaluator will be able to pick up on that, uh, which I think is a good thing. But since the evaluation is hard, it's difficult to, to in some sense, do massive hyperparameter tuning on it and try to get lucky with some really good hyperparameters. We kind of have to do things that are probably fundamentally the correct thing to do that ideally does need to quantitative improvement. So there's the research challenge for sure. But because deep neural networks off the shelf are not very good at any of this, you know, even like down to abductive reasoning, in my lab, we found that by putting better reasoning algorithms on top, 
that is intellectually seemingly the right thing to do, we often do get measurable improvement quantitatively through crowdsourced evaluation as well. So, And if the model is really good, then we do then have an option of also putting an online demo, in which case um, it's really, the system is really under the evaluation, diverse evaluation by a lot of creative people. So that's another way to go. That makes a lot of sense to me. And it does seem like a worthwhile trade-off in that there is a little bit more of a burden, a difficulty in improving these systems in a very measurable way, as you said, so that a human can pick up on it as opposed to like, I improved over your state of the art by 0.0001% on this benchmark. And now I have a paper for it, yeah. which um, is is a nice shift. I like that a lot. So let's actually talk about some of these models that can do this kind of common sense reasoning that you've worked on. In particular, I think I've looked at two of them, DeLorean and Comet. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about those systems and how they work. Why do they improve over existing pre-trained language models to better perform common sense inference? Yeah, so DeLorean is inference time algorithm. It's not a machine learning method per se, but more like once you have learned model, especially language model, can you then use it off the shelf through a better algorithm uh, so that the model can do things that uh, originally the model was not trained for? In particular, it can do abductive reasoning that we discussed earlier, such that DeLorean algorithm allows you to be able to condition on both the what happened in the past as well as what happened in the future and then now you have to fill in this middle sentence that describes what happened in the future in the context of what happened in the past. That's not what off-the-shelf generative language models are trained for because they're usually left to write or unidirectional models, autoregressive model that can only condition on either past or future. You know, it can only do one or the other in general. But Interesting question is humans never really learn to predict middle sentence by reading left and right sentences. We only ever read one direction. And yet, you know, if you need to edit some article that you're writing for the gradient, you can do that right away, right? You don't have to train yourself or fine tune yourself over hundreds of thousands of such examples. So that's exactly what we're trying to achieve. We're inspired by what humans are capable of. Um, and then trying to address this via inference algorithm. And DeLorean does that by um, using backpropagation. So the use of backpropagation for inference purpose actually has been done before for image style transfer. Uh, usually backpropagation, we oftentimes assume that it's used for just learning the net network har- uh, parameters, but it's also possible to use backpropagation to reason about some desired input representation or sentence in the middle representation while fixing the model parameters as is. So we're not updating model parameter. We're only updating the middle sentence that's missing such that it would optimize some objective function. In this case, the overall probability score of all sentences together. My personal take on this is that I think a lot of, you know, we talked about lamentation earlier. A lot of folks are frustrated by the fact that, well, in the past, we used to do these intellectually beautiful equations, and we now feel like there's not much of a chance because transformer is the way to go, and you know, 
anything unnecessarily convoluted is out the door. Well, inference is where we can still do do the fancy Schumann algorithm stuff because neural networks, no matter how good they are, they can still be made better and algorithms are powerful. So we, we did do that and there are some other related work of that, of that nature from my group. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting take on a way to do inference via backpropagation. So as you said, it's like we've got this fixed neural network, so I'm not going to modify the weights in any way. But what I can backprop over, given this contextual information and then information that's going to come later that maybe provides some restricting, and then I've got this middle information I want to generate is I can do backpropagation so as to tune the intermediate information that my model is going to generate as opposed to anything else. So this is really the only thing that changes, whereas everything else remains fixed, right, according to that probability score. Yeah, and um, I, I suspect that what we did with DeLorean is not even the you know best version of such algorithm, inference algorithm. In fact, um, in our lab, we have a new archive paper called Cold Decoding, that's energy-based, uh, backpropagation-based, more generalized version of DeLorean style reasoning. And again, I feel, I suspect that there can be even better ways of doing this. And I am excited to see what the smart folks in the field might be able to do here. Yeah, this is a very exciting line. One thing I wonder about DeLorean and these inference-based common sense applications is there are limitations with regard to picking up on implicit knowledge. One of the things we were discussing earlier was how well my system can understand things that are just known to me, that are expressed in my sentences, but not explicitly. I'm curious how systems like DeLorean can do on this and whether we maybe need to start integrating things like knowledge graphs or other sorts of information to really tease that out. That's an excellent question. And indeed, DeLorean makes you know neural network somewhat better for reasoning purposes, but it cannot really bring out all the hidden knowledge that's not there yet. And so that leads to this another line of research. You actually asked about Comet that I haven't answered yet, but that's where we focus more on explicit knowledge integration into neural network. And in our early work, which is Comet, Common Sense Transformers, we relied on the knowledge graph written by humans because Back then, which is uh, 2019 or even 2020, we didn't have a way to automatically generate the symbolic knowledge graph such that it's actually reliable for training neural networks and then still being able to do high-quality reasoning. So back then, we built this crowdsourced common-sense knowledge graph with... um, 1.3 1.3 million if-then rules or rules of a thumb about everyday events and people's uh, cognitive state and emotional state and whatnot. And so we have a, a demo that does do uh, surprisingly well, I would say. It's not re- achieving human-level common sense, but uh, a lot of people were surprised that, oh, machine can do this now, including uh, myself. But then we now have a new, new work called the symbolic knowledge distillation that is more focused on extracting that hidden but noisy knowledge off from neural network and then making it better algorithmically so that it's actually as good as human written knowledge or even better, depending on how much we are 
willing to throw away some of the potentially bad knowledge, we are able to achieve a new symbolic knowledge graph, at least with respect to causal common sense knowledge. Uh, we have basically GPT-3 based knowledge graph. It's not just GPT-3, it's GPT-3 plus some other algorithmic approaches, but it's actually be better in the sense that more diverse, it's much cheaper, it's much larger scale and higher quality. That's an exciting development that definitely does solve this problem that really sticks out earlier of now we have these really powerful methods where we can combine neural networks with knowledge graphs, but that doesn't scale if knowledge graphs have to be human generated. So why don't we take a massive pre-trained language model like GPT-3 and filter out the bad stuff, get to the good stuff. I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on what that method for taking out the bad information looks like. Because one thing that really sticks out when you first present the method is it's well known that if I have a pre-trained language model that's been trained on the internet, it's going to pick up a lot of incorrect information. It's going to pick up a lot of biased information, things that I might not want to show up in a knowledge graph. So how exactly do you, do you get that information out? Yeah, so our first shot approach is to train a discriminator based on a small set of or relatively small set of examples that are learned to filter out examples that are potentially bad. And this discriminator is not very good because it, it's not really able to tell whether something is truly good knowledge or not. But we can use the discriminator very aggressively with um, different threshold to adjust. And if we're willing to really overgenerate and throw out a lot, then we are able to get still a lot of data, a lot of knowledge, but of high quality. That's um, our you know, initial result. And I do think that the filtering can be done much better. There are so many things that we can actually do better. Uh, in, in fact, um, we have a follow-up work on that that doesn't even rely on GPT-3 just offer from GPT-2, how far can we push for different types of uh, common sense knowledge? It's not even on archive yet, but we do see very interesting um, results that can begin to close the gap between GPT-2 and 3 when we are willing to look at things from different angle, not just scaling things up, but how about throwing in more discriminator, for example. It's uh, becoming more like collection of classifiers as opposed to just one model doing the job on its own. And then we also can add more of a collective inference algorithm, which was what was very important when I was doing PhD, collective inference. Like these days, collective inference, you know, some new generation never heard of it, but it might become relevant again when we try to solve these questions uh, from a different angle. Yeah, that, that'll be exciting. And it does sound like there's definitely been a few cases here in our discussion so far of where these old-fashioned methods, the knowledge grasping was at one point literally called good old-fashioned AI, are, are being brought back and getting in vogue again, which is, which is interesting. Before we move on to moral reasoning, I think we've gotten a good picture of the landscape of common sense reasoning, where it is. I do want to spend a little bit of time on the use cases of common sense reasoning. I think that we've established this is a pretty interesting capability to develop in language models and really exciting. It seems like it could push their potential forward a lot. Now, I just want to spend at least a couple of minutes on what sort of use cases are there for this. And as a researcher who's really doing a lot in this field, what do you see as 
the positive cases here, but also maybe some of the potential negative use cases? Um, yeah, so uh, as we shared our resource online, uh, people started doing creative things using that resource, which includes storytelling, dialogue response generation, including interactive systems on a mobile phone. And this particular application is done by Tom Michel at CMU and other co-authors. And then also understanding figurative language through the lens of common sense interpretation of metaphoric language use. And there may be more. And on and off, some people also use this for improving performances on common sense QA benchmarks. Though that tends to be wiped out by even bigger, you know, more overfitted, larger language models that can directly learn from the spurious patterns in the data as opposed to needing the external knowledge. Unless we try to test the few shot or zero shot, in which case, again, these resources become relevant. So there still, you know, the resource has been there maybe for about only two, three years by now. And as we improve the quality of the resource, more creative use cases might come out. The potential misuse, that's uh, very interesting. I realized that the better AI system, if the AI system doesn't work very well, we don't need to worry about it because it's just nobody deploys. But if it does work, then there's a potential concern. And that means we do need to uh, be careful about the biases that these models might have. And these common sense models in our original design, we removed the mention of people. We, people goes by just X and Y, it's just some um, alphabet variable. So that um, any bias uh, having to do with the gender or race might not sneak in, we thought. And yet we realized, so it's not as visible, but it's still there. So for example, somebody gets a lot of sun and then getting sunburned. That's very um, you know particular about particular race as opposed to broadly true. So it's indirectly sneaking in. So that's something that we do need to worry about going forward. Yeah. One other thing that comes to my mind in that domain too, is that if I have a language model, a generative model that is now endowed with some form of common sense reasoning, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more convincing to me in a sense. So hypothetically, if I were speaking to a chatbot, even if that chatbot is based off of a powerful language model, once I peck it with enough questions, often I think people can figure out, okay, this thing doesn't know what it's talking about. It doesn't have a picture of the world. But if you have a really good model that is endowed with capable common sense reasoning, you could imagine a lot of people were pretty worried about the implications of GPT-3 for disinformation bots and things like that. One thing I wonder is whether common sense models, if people wanted to use a language model for those types of things, could actually make those even more convincing. That's that's one worry that stuck out to me as I was thinking about this. Yeah, that's a very good point. Anything that, I mean, even like you said, misinformation, disinformation, and fake news related question is that up until a week ago, I thought research on that is obviously very important thing to work on for the good of broader society, especially that uh, fake news becomes a real challenge. And even, you know, this year, last year, it's a big challenge. And then I realized 
if we work on it and then build a powerful model that does really well so that it's actually doing better than average human being, that's when the big concern also begins because it may not be perfect. So let's just say it's like 90% good as opposed to human being, which may be you know, anywhere between 60 to 80, depending on the prior beliefs that they have, et cetera. What's that supposed to mean? Like that there's a 10% mistakes where AI is claiming fake news as a true news and vice versa. It can be a real problem, especially if the AI model is also reflecting the worldview, political view of you know particular majority or powerful groups of people, then it's it's even bigger concern, especially uh, what is fake news in itself is under debate in some countries right now, in plural, unfortunately. So uh, yeah, it's all around a big challenge and I don't really have a good answer, to be honest. There's something to worry about though. Yeah, it, it does seem like there there really isn't a good answer to a lot of these questions right now. And it seems like pragmatically, the best thing that can be done is norm setting and just a lot of care on the part of researchers like you or people who are really putting these systems out there. But I do hope that people continue paying lots of attention to this because I think that we need better solutions than just pragmatics. And I think that it's going to take a lot of time to get there. So as a bad segue, we've been discussing some of the ethical implications of common sense intelligence. Can we talk a little bit about moral reasoning now? Tell me a little bit about what that is, how it overlaps with the common sense reasoning we've been talking about. Yeah, so I came to a conclusion that we cannot not do moral reasoning when we are doing AI because it's making implicit, it, it's making already decisions that are uh, implicitly loaded with ethical or moral implications. You know, sometimes in the way that it says something biased against some people, especially against the people in the marginalized groups. And then sometimes by way of just endorsing morally questionable act. For example, you know, if you just ping poke GPT-3 about, you know, when is it okay to write fake news, you know, then GPT-3 says that it's okay if it's in the interest of the country, or it's okay if it helps with uh, ROP agenda. You know, by the way, this is what GPT said literally. And I suspect that he said so because what people out there said in the, on the internet, whether you know people agree with that statement of GPT-3 or not, that's there. And ideally, GPT-3 shouldn't say that it's okay to f- spread the fake news no matter what. So these um, language models are already doing these things, so we cannot not do it. And another realization that we had was this toxicity and bias uh, that language models have that we want to better address. Again, uh, some of these require a bit of a common sense reasoning in, in the sense that, for example, this is a really sad example that I want, I'm um, hesitating whether I should mention or not, but there's this uh, online community that cracks jokes uh, that are not funny they think it's funny. It's uh, funny by making fun of some people in the underrepresented groups. And one of them was like a Muslim person went to a bank with a suitcase and then bang. So the common sense understanding is that, yeah, maybe the, the person bombed the bank, 
but it doesn't say that it, this person exploded the bomb or anything. It leaves things to the imagination of the uh, readers. And because there's no particular bad word, a lot of these online systems cannot detect it as potential hate speech or toxicity. So a lot of these examples, there, there are a lot of sad examples in which keyword-based filtering does not work. You have to have some reasoning on top. So I had this um, realization that common sense reasoning and moral reasoning and language model use cases, these are all, on one hand, conceptually different things. On the other hand, interlived. So we wanted to study how far can we push for at least common sense level of moral reasoning, not like philosophical moral dilemma that's even beyond a lot of us. We just wanted to see whether language models can avoid some stuff that's obviously bad. It turns out even that's not trivial, but uh, that's how we began. That makes sense. And it's, it's interesting how that manifests in your work. And I like the way that you introduced this overlap to the problem, because we often talk about these intelligence systems making decisions that we then evaluate according to moral criteria, because as you've pointed out, those decisions are implicitly loaded with these ethically laden judgments. And in some of the things you've worked on, like Delphi, it comes across more explicitly. It's something like, can I interrogate this language model explicitly about moral issues to understand something about the representations it's gleaned about the world or meaning or language from, from its training? Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about how we actually measure these systems, just as we did for common sense intelligence more generally. So what sorts of data sets and measurements do you use to train and, and understand how, how well systems perform along moral reasoning? Yeah, so we did different things for different papers, but for the Delphi system, we wanted to see what happens if we combined already existing resources such as social chemistry, that's from my group, about social rules of thumb. That, for example, running a blender at 5 a.m. when there's a roommate living with you probably is a rude thing to do. It's not, you know, something that's like causing life and death situation, but it's a fairly rude and unreasonable thing to do. So we annotated a bunch of it. And then we also worked on social bias frames, which is all about biases, subtle biases uh, that people have in their language use. And then there were other uh, benchmarks, uh, one from also Berkeley called Ethics Datasets, and we combined them all and then did a unified QA training on top. And to our surprise, if we do, at least in the laboratory setting where we split the data randomly into training and test, then the Delphi performance was surprisingly good. And then we put on to the demo and completely unexpectedly, the demo got a lot of public engagements. I think it's because it was in this Goldilocks zone of being surprisingly good. If you ask you know, a lot of questions, that tends to be, definitely tends to be surprisingly good, but also at the same time, unsurprisingly bad if you give convoluted questions that tries to trigger the innate uh, bias that language models have, but it's not too easy to break it. So um, the success ratio, when we look at 
especially the more simpler questions, Delphi was still like doing, you know, 85% to good. If a more like some people wrote crazy long paragraph, then, you know, Delphi is not reliable at all for that kind of a more complex uh, narratives. So then the performance goes down, but it was still like, I think between 80, 90, depending on like what people ask. But it also raised, I mean, we, we were aware that some of these questions like abortion, it's a hard to, I mean, I have my position, but it's hard to insist that there's only one gold label to it. Uh, we knew this uh, beginning, even bias, by the way, uh, microaggression and racism. Some people think it's a freedom of a speech, depending on who you ask. We, we knew all this, but we realized that it's quite tricky, like what the gold label should be, should gold label even exist, and the research opens the door to a lot of follow-up research questions. Yeah, I do want to spend a little bit of time on how you go about that gold labeling, and maybe we don't have to talk about really difficult examples like abortion just yet, but... In the Moral Stories paper, one really interesting thing that you bring out in the way that you get gold labels for things is via this, this descriptive morality, a more ground up idea of how do humans evaluate and make moral judgments based off of the real situations they're in in social contexts. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time just on how this factors, how you make a decision to go about constructing these labels using something like descriptive morality. Because when I read that, it came out to me as something like like a meta-ethical presupposition that was being made. It doesn't really go all the way to moral anti-realism, but it does reject the idea that a moral claim is true or false objectively, regardless of who is making it. And it sounds to me a little bit like like ethical subjectivism, the idea that the truth or falsity of, of an ethical proposition is going to be dependent on the attitudes of people. So I'm curious how you think about the meta-ethical commitments that are being made in the construction of a data set like this. That's an excellent question. And I, the way you interpreted it, maybe one way to view it, which I, I see how uh, where you're coming from, but um, it might also be that the interpretation is a lot in the way that people use it or believe it or interpret. So if we view Delphi as descriptive report of what people generally said, then uh, we're not really making any claim about prescriptively what is the correct thing to do. We're just reporting what descriptively what people at large seemed to think about this question and that question. And I don't think purely you know, having done a bit of a soul searching in a while, I came to the conclusion that, I mean, descriptive ethics alone cannot be the right thing to do because unfortunately, uh, people do have a lot of racism and sexism even to this day. And maybe it's important to, to inject a bit of a prescriptive notion about the fact that maybe, you know, it's not fair to say things that's racism and sexism. But then there's this question of who's deciding that. It's a question. I don't know whether scientists should decide it, but the scientists did decide it for Delphi. Um, it was not perfect by any measure because even the crowd workers, uh, although they do have a self-selection bias, so those people who work on our bias data does tend to be more left-leaning, we suspect. But, you know, they these are all like, graded. So not everybody agrees entirely with 
whether something is um, toxic or not. And I almost feel like I opened a can of, um, I don't know, Pandora box, let's say. Um, there are a lot of uh, questions that I don't have answer to. And certainly, I mean, morality itself as a philosophical question, the humanity didn't really come to a conclusion yet. And I don't think AI will find a conclusion either. And uh, it's a very, very tricky situation because even though we don't know how to do it quite right, we cannot not do it entirely either because it's already doing all that. Um, almost language model as is, is a descriptive, implicit descriptive machine that reflects what the human bias is at large. Yeah, that's a very good point. It's like this difference between the prescriptive type things, maybe our, our idealism, but then also what's pragmatic out there. Yes, these systems are making ethically laden judgments, and we'd like to at least understand those judgments and whether they align with our values, with the normative statements that we make about the world. So that's definitely a really important question. And yes, I guess it is definitely a can of worms, but it's I'm sure it's one that was going to be opened eventually, if not by you, then by somebody else. One other thing I want to touch on in that regard is one thing that's repeatedly said to the point that it feels like a cliche is that an AI system's morality is, is a product of the people who built it. You pointed this out already. And for these moral systems as well, you and the other researchers who worked on a system like Delphi share in that. And I'm curious if you can maybe, just as a, as a concrete case, share any aspects of maybe your own worldview or your process of working on systems like Delphi that might be salient and might have made their way into, into that system. Yeah, it's uh, somewhat left-leaning. It's not as left as it can get. Not necessarily on purpose. I I mean, we, we were not trying to recruit left-leaning crowd workers or anything. But um, like I said earlier, we speculate that there may be a bit of implicit self-selection bias, especially when people work on our task on bias detection. Maybe there's that. Other than that, we try to stay away from injecting, other than the social bias frame, we, we tried not to inject uh, the worldview. But then, so when we build the social chemistry, by the way, which is the almost the, the bulk of what Delphi relies on, plus the social bias frame, but social chemistry is really the backbone, knowledge backbone. We didn't anticipate people might ask, you know, uh, adversarial questions that try to bring out the model bias against uh, countries in Iran, uh, uh, Arab, and and whatnot. So we ended up adding those uh, guard later for the online system, just like based on religion, country, uh, race, gender. We started the safeguarding a lot more um, based on some of the problematic cases that we saw. Uh, that's when probably, you know, our worldview got most injected there. Whether that was the correct thing to do, it's debatable probably. We did it because we thought it's the right thing to do. But I, sure. I would understand if someone objects. And you just have to do the best you can. It's yeah. it's really hard to fault yeah. that. So I'll ask maybe one last question specifically on Delphi and just maybe a final question on 
the continuance of all this research and some of the next steps. Before, before we finish up with Adelphi, though, you make this really important note that AI systems are not and never should be used as moral authorities or sources of advice on human ethics. And this is really important. You're making a normative statement here. But there's also this pragmatic question about how people will use tools once they're available. For example, emotion recognition researchers are apparently not super happy that their work gets used for things like screening job applicants through their videos. But the existence of that work, the availability of it, and the fact that people are like, oh, this looks really cool. Let me come up with like a business case for it means that it feels almost inevitable that this work is going to get used in ways that the researchers didn't intend. And as a researcher working on this kind of thing, you've clearly laid out what you think the normative principles should be for the use of this. But how do you think about that pragmatic question of, should I make this type of work available for people to even use? And once the cat's out of the bag, as it were, people are going to find ways to use it that I didn't intend and I really don't want. Yeah, that's a great question. So hypothetical scenario where somebody makes um app that gives moral advice. I mean, I speculate that a lot of people will use it more as a fun app that occasionally says ridiculous things as opposed to the true moral advice. Or more broadly, will people actually use AI system for real advice in general? I'm not sure. But so I, I think there's a fundamental difference between, you know, which users will get serious about this, perhaps for their lack of AI uh, literacy. Because I doubt AI researchers will actually believe, you know, oh my God, now this is my moral standard and really truly believe that. No. So this is more about lay people's use cases. In part, ideally, such companies will get some public complaints for their potential damage so that it's not easy to sell those things. Otherwise, any responsible organizations, including government, I mean, they do have AI advisory board in general, They should know that uh, these systems are never quite perfect, so you can use it as a reference point, but not as a final say. And that is true even for the medical AI research that tries to help with medical diagnosis, or even AI research that tries to search uh, relevant scientific findings from the scientific papers. And all of these, there are case possibilities that the search result is incorrect or the, the diagnosis, neural network diagnosis are inc- incorrect and it's up to human to decide finally what to do with it. So I, I think um, we somehow need to find a policy or a cultural norms that AI is just a tool. I, I don't know if AGI, you know, that people, some people say will actually ever come. But I, at the same time, I believe that AI can become really powerful tool, and uh, we will somehow need to find a way to still own the decision as opposed to just go by what AI told me so. I agree. I think that 
the policy factors and the cultural norms are really important. And as you said, there's so many different factors here. And I, I take very seriously, I think, the idea that people might be inclined to do something like give their moral judgments away to a system, because I think that there maybe are, at least to me, just some aspects of human nature that are like, I like to feel justified in the things I do. And if I view somebody or something as an authority, then if it justifies the decisions that I lean towards making myself, then I feel so much more justified in going after and doing those things. And to what you said about AI literacy, yes, a lot of people out there don't have the amount of vast knowledge of AI systems and their limitations that you do in order to make these judgments about what sorts of decisions should I offload to these systems and how much trust should I put into them. So I do take that as a very serious risk. And one thing I always wonder about is, can policy and norms really catch up in time before a system like this gets used in some nefarious way or just causes damage? We've already seen with other situations, and I think this discussion really extends far beyond the moral reasoning work you're doing, where the marketing of of Tesla Autopilot, for example, as full self-driving caused, I think at least partially caused a lot of people to act as though it really were a full self-driving system and sit in the back seat letting the car drive. And then we just saw a whole bunch of Tesla crashes. And I really don't want the analog of that to happen in something like a moral reasoning system where, you know, this kind of case is somebody developing an app and then people offloading moral judgments to it, which I think is a little bit of, of a toy example here, but still the type of thing that I that I take very, very seriously. Yeah, I hear you. Perhaps to though um, I for that system to really take off, probably it will have to be really good, and especially for looking at the dilemma very carefully and not getting easily fooled by adversarial examples, and really addressing that might be so much harder than, I mean, unless you know somehow there's a lot of industry funding for really making it work in the way that there has been so much funding about making self-driving car work. With a lot of money, you can build a lot of good data and make it work. But I don't know whether there will be a lot of such funding to enable that and then try to engage with a lot of people. And that's somehow very profitable. So thanks to the weaknesses of a pre-trained language model, not really understanding the human document all that well, Anything complicated, you know, court cases that goes beyond even, you know, go, going beyond the paragraph, not even a sentence. And then Delphi-like systems are better at just looking at a very simple sentence description um, as of today or for years to come. So the risk is a little bit further away. But in a hypothetical situation where that does happen, I agree with you that there's some concern to think about in advance. Uh, what, what can we do policy-wise? I think this is where the regulation should be um, better prepared in advance. Yeah, it does seem like regulation generally tends to play catch up a lot with the advances of, of AI systems and other technological systems. But maybe for, for some of these problems, as you said, without a whole bunch of industry funding, they'll probably move along a little bit more slowly. And so we won't see the day where these systems can reason over complicated textual descriptions, really long ones, and all of that information 
then it's not quite an immediate worry, but something where we can get out ahead. So maybe just as a, as a final question on this, you've told me a little bit about where things are today in terms of common sense and moral reasoning. And so I'd love if we could just end on you telling me a bit about the immediate next things that you're doing on these two lines of research and what you think some of the the hardest problems, hardest challenges you're facing right now are. Yeah, so I am excited to do uh, more in this line, especially teaming up with experts outside the computer science who specializes in either moral philosophy or moral psychology work. So I already began some such collaborations. And there are a few directions that we are currently pursuing. One is to look at the inconsistencies of decision-making more carefully, and then being able to add more interpretability to it, which is especially a big problem with the black box model for the purpose of moral reasoning. And we want to articulate why, what, what sort of a cost-benefit is there when you make one decision over the other. Because there, oftentimes there's this moral dilemma where even if it's not a serious one, still there's a bit of like a killing a bear to save my child is acceptable because what, you know? So there's these uh, two things that you're weighing in and sacrificing one thing over the other. And we want to see whether we can articulate that better. It's a wishful uh, research direction, which may or may not be easy to pull off. But if it goes well, then the next step would be to be able to do on-the-fly model editing so that we can uh, customize or uh, change the model behavior to uh, align better with my worldview if I were to use it for my own applications. And then another um, research direction that I'm excited about is diversifying the cultural norms, especially focusing on Asian countries where the social norms are very different, which means the ethical judgments can also be different. And then we are also, this is something that we've already done, but we're also exploring a more positive downstream use case, more safe use case where Delphi is confined as just component to model under some other model, for example, just dial, dialogue systems or neural language generator that has just moral filter that cannot really change very much other than, you know, change the distribution of the language that you might want to speak out next or uh, we also have this new result, um, not on Archivia, but we are going to update it soon, uh, where we can show hate speech detection can be done much better without much of uh, training data uh, if trained off from Delphi. So uh, I think there could be more positive and safe use cases that we can explore further. There's also something really exciting. One of the ones that stuck out to me was what you said about the diversity of cultural norms, because back when we were talking about descriptive morality, one thing that stuck out to me about this was a lot of the ethical presuppositions there can depend on what group of people you are sourcing those descriptive ethics from and the particular social, historical, cultural norms that those people have. And so that seems like a really important line to go down. So I'm, I'm excited to see how that goes in the future. So before we, we officially finish, if our listeners are interested in, in learning a little bit more about you and your work, where would you suggest they go? My homepage does have pointers of uh, different kinds, including some recorded talks or 
There's some media articles written more for broader audience that they can check out. I'm not sure what exactly I should um, pinpoint, but the recent New Yorker article on common sense is pretty fun. And also there's a Quanta Magazine article that was also uh, really nicely done, I, I would think, with a lot of uh, tricky examples where models surprisingly do well or uh, fail, both always. Awesome. Yeah, and I can link a few of those articles as well in the description. I know I, I, know I read a few and they were, they were really great and informative. So thank you. thank you again for spending so much time talking to me, Ajin. This was really great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was fun conversation. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub and our substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked the episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. See you in the next episode.